Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 287 of F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, we are releasing our second iteration of the Artists Asking Artists series. I was joined by David Thompson and Candy Watson. Candy reached out to me to interview David since he is one of her favorite photographers, and I was happy that she did because it was a really fun episode to record. I hope you enjoy it. Before we start, I want to thank my friends David Kingham and Jennifer Renwick for putting in the hard work to make Nature Photographers Network such a great platform for photographers. NPN is simply a wonderful community for nature photographers. The people there are so generous with their time and offer amazing critique on photographs and provide thoughtful comments on your images. In fact, we just had Alistair Ben on there for a whole critique day. It was awesome. There's lots of other events happening on the site almost weekly, and it's just great value for your money if you're into nature photography as much as me. For just $49 per year, you can join the community over on NPN and gain access to these incredible benefits, including access to fantastic articles, webinars, thoughtful critique, and discounted tutorials, software, and books. It's such a great place, and we'd love to see you there. Just head over to npn.link forward slash f-stop to join. Use the code f-stop10 for a 10% discount. Okay, let's get to this week's show with David Thompson and Candy Watson. Welcome to the podcast, Candy Watson and David Thompson. Hey, Matt. What's going on, Matt? We're here today to do our second installment of Artists Asking Artists series, and I've always thought this would be a fun format for the podcast for people to ask questions of one of their favorite photographers, and Candy reached out to me and said I would really love to talk to David Thompson, and I was like, oh, I I think I could make that happen, so here we are. I don't know why she chose me, but I'll take it. Oh, come on, man. Because you're an interesting guy, and your work is amazing. I appreciate that, but I am as boring as can be. Trust me. You would be if you were around me for five minutes, Candy. You would be bored out of your mind. I don't think so. Back in April, <laughs> I met with Wayne Suggs, and he told me you could have David Thompson on once a month, and I would listen every time. <laughs> exactly. I love Wayne. Wayne is awesome. Yeah. I love Wayne. He's such a great guy. True that. For people that don't know about you, Candy, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay. I live in Yakima, Washington, the desert of central Washington. It's not green like the coast. I've been shooting for 11 years and mostly landscapes. I do some weddings and a lot of family and maternity portraits. That's where I make my money. And are you a full-time photographer? No, part-time. I have a full-time job and I take care of a special needs child as well. Oh, we should talk afterwards because that's also my full-time job is I oversee the operations of a nonprofit that provides services to adults and children with developmental disabilities. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, we have a lot in common. David Thompson, I feel like you don't need an introduction, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well? Oh, the most boring guy on the planet, like I said earlier, David Thompson. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada, here in the Southwest. Just an ordinary guy with a camera that goes out and points my camera at stuff, mainly focusing landscape and nature photography. And that's really it. I don't have no big introduction for you, Matt. 
Yeah, I know. I remember when you agreed to become a judge for the NLPA, I was like, hey, can you send me over like a short bio? And you're like, dude, can you just write it for me? Yeah, I'm just like, I just don't really, I don't really talk myself up like that. I don't, it's, like I said, I, I just consider myself super simple. Like, I'm really just normal. You've met me many times in the field, Matt. You just already know I'm real laid back, super chill. And that's just how I am. Yeah, no doubt. I will say that almost every single person I know in landscape photography thinks very highly of you and your photography. So I don't think you give yourself quite enough credit. Oh, I appreciate that. Those guys are people that say that are too kind. Yeah, I appreciate that for sure. Candy, let's go ahead and turn it over to you. I know you've got a whole litany of really awkward and uncomfortable questions that you've prepared oh. for David to see what kind of reaction we can get out of him. So why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Okay. Oh, here we go. Here we go. So one of the things is I was listening to Nick Page's podcast and yeah. you and Miles and Ryan were on there. And if anybody hasn't listened to that, go listen because it's hilarious. <laughs> but one of the things that I remember Miles was saying when he first met you, you were like a mediocre photographer at best. Yep. And then all of a sudden you just your images got fantastic and you were just blowing everybody out of the water. So with that said, my first question is you're a husband, you're a father, you work full time. How did you manage to get so good so fast? Damn, Matt, she needs to, she needs to take over your spot. I guess so. <laughs> That's a great question. So at that time when I met Ryan and Miles, those guys, everybody knows that Miles Morgan, Ryan Dyer, those guys are like they're good. They're really good, real creative guys. And when I met them, they were at a level that never seemed obtainable for myself. And just knowing them and being around them. And when I would go out into the field, I would just see how they would just look at the landscape, the little nuances that landscape photographers do. But when it came to being out by myself, I had to learn some of those nuances but what it came down to is just being persistent and just being able to accept failure and then keep keep at it. As we all know, this photography stuff, it's hard. It's really hard. And none of the stuff yeah. comes, none of the stuff out there comes easy. The other thing that I did is I set my expectations really low. So what I would do in the process of learning everything, I would start with, say, I would spend like a year just processing, just really trying to improve my processing for how I like it, not trying to copy anybody else's style or anything like that. I needed to find my own style, what I was comfortable with. Once I got to that point, then it came down to in the field practice so in terms of composition, reading light, learning light, learning what light does to certain landscapes, seeing what it does to certain subjects. And then once I got that down a little bit better, it's putting all of that together and then building off of that. So you're every time you're going out, you're constantly building off of previous experiences. And the other thing that helped me out a lot was photographing different subjects, right? So my work, I've always wanted it to be very diverse. If you shoot a specific landscape for a period of time, you're going to get good, no matter what. It's just going to come natural to you. But what are you yeah. going to do to step outside of the box to challenge yourself? So that was one of the things that I was always doing was just trying to step outside of the box and challenge myself to something different. So for example, I live down here in Vegas 
It's all desert down here. I would make a trip maybe two to three times a year to the Pacific Northwest. And I would just go right to the coast. I don't shoot the coast that often. Finding stuff that worked on the coast that I liked was a challenge for me, but I would keep trying. Then we'd switch it up and maybe go into the Olympic rainforest where it's super chaotic. It's busy. Everything is green. Now you're completely switching up what you typically see down in the desert to this whole completely green landscape and trying to organize this chaos. So it just really came down to being persistent. And as long as you're persistent and you are willing to fail and know that this is a marathon, you're going to progress in time. I think that a lot of people have the tendency to want to learn everything all at once. And that just slows down the learning process, believe it or not. Now, if you take that and flip that around and just be consistent with it and take your time, you're eventually going to grow as an artist. And I just really make that suggestion to everybody out there. Take your time and be patient with everything. David, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is that you've really developed a very recognizable editing technique or set of techniques or a look and feel, I guess you could say. When people look at your images, it's like, yep, yep, there's a DT image. And what I think is interesting about that is that you surrounded yourself with people that don't have the same type of editing style that you have. I've always been curious about that difference and that dichotomy. So I'm always wondering about what steps you took to kind of branch out and develop your own editing style. I So what I did early on, like obviously there's, we all have our favorites that inspire us, like a Mark Adamus, a Ryan Dyer, from Miles. You know, going back to this time, this is like a Floris Van Bugel. Who else? Emmanuel Coop. Who else? These are just the guys that have just come off the top of my head right now, but all of those guys had different, had a different style. So in my mind, I would always dissect everybody's work and look at it a little bit different. You look at a guy like Ryan, who's very moody and dramatic. So maybe I can see how he does his stuff. Not again, not emulate it, but just take like little mental notes of how he would maybe make stuff a little darker, depending on what the scene is. Then I looked at guys like Flores and Emmanuel Coupe, who would focus a lot of their work on mid-tone contrast and... The more that I looked at those guys' work, I aligned a little bit more with that because that's just the direction of what I was shooting and the subjects that I was shooting was aligning a lot, aligning a lot more towards that. Basically, it's just a culmination of everything. So you're just taking bits and pieces of stuff that you're seeing, and then you're just putting your own twist on it, if you will. Because it, at the end of the day, no matter how we try to copy people's stuff or emulate their work, they are going to have their own style. You're not going to be able to get that exact same look. It's just not going to happen. So I knew that going in and nor did I want to be like them either, but there were certain things that they did that have a certain thing that I would like within the process and I'll put my own little twist on it. With that being said, over the years, just practicing and learning Photoshop and learning what tools work for me and the way I process is definitely going to make you have a different look than everybody else as well. So for example, how I approach my reds in the sky of the print on your wall mat is going to be different than how you might approach it or the way Candy might approach it. You might have three steps to get your sky to look like that. Candy may have five. I may have six. All those little steps do make a difference. You just got to 
do what works for you. I just knew that I wanted to be different. So I would do whatever I could to just step outside of the box and make my imagery look a little bit different than what everybody else was doing. And I think too, the diversity also helped with that. I can't stress that enough. I've said it before on other podcasts where I got into the whole thing of shooting big sky. That was my thing. I think we all do that when we first start. We want that big dramatic sky. But the reality of that and the way I like to get out and do my photography just wasn't, it just wasn't like sustainable. It just doesn't happen like that all the time. So I had to look at shooting other subjects and some of those other subjects, you cannot apply the same kind of processing as you would with a big, huge sky. It just, it just doesn't work. Lighting is going to be different. Colors are going to be different. That kind of processing may not necessarily work with this small scene that's a foot wide or something like that. I think it was a combination of things, Matt, and obviously experience. Time in the field also dictates how you see the landscape and how you process. And that was something that nobody ever taught me or I can look at an image in and see. That's something that you're going to have to learn on your own to realize that, hey, the light that's out there should dictate how you capture the scene and how you process it. And again, that's something that nobody ever told me. That was something that I had to learn on my own through through experience. Yeah. I remember when I first started, every time I went out, I had to bring something home. And if I didn't, I was devastated. And yeah. as soon as I let go of that and started learning to enjoy the experience, whether I brought something home or not, was huge and it completely right. changed the way right. I shoot. And that was a, and that's, that goes back into the accepting the failure aspect of it. I was the same way. If I didn't get anything, I was just like, oh man, I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And I found myself trying to force my imagery and it just didn't feel organic. And once I got past that, and again, lowering the expectations, the work became a lot more productive and I ha I was having a lot more fun with creating the images out there. So yeah, it makes a I difference. Mean, I've gone on road trips and didn't even break out my camera because yeah. the conditions weren't right or whatever. And yeah, I didn't shoot anything, but it was still fun. I've sure. learned the art of scouting and yeah. a lot of people don't do that. They go to a certain area, they yep. shoot that and you can, there's a lot of images to be had along the way. Sure. Sure. And, and that's been the same process that, that I started doing as well. Just, not getting overly caught up with the end result, if you will, and seeing what I can get in between them. Yeah. So with that, everybody knows that you're a friend of Miles and Ryan. Have, and this is going to be a little pointed. Have you ever been accused of being like them or copying them? And no. if you Okay. I was going to say, no. and if you have, how'd you handle it? No, absolutely not. Because again, those guys have their own unique style. There is no way that I will be able to ever copy a Ryan Dyer or a Miles Morgan or anybody else out there. I just wouldn't be able to emulate that. It's just, again, it's the little nuances and little touches that they all put on, but everybody puts on their work that makes it different. Yeah, no, I never had that, yeah. um, that before. I've always said that two people or three people can go out to a certain location and every single person will come back with something different. Yeah, it's, it's their eye. You're right. I'll, I got a, a good story for that. So speaking of Ryan, and he'll love this one. So one day we were in the gorge, we were shooting wildflowers, and we were literally standing. I kid you not. I, we maybe a foot. I'm gonna. I'll say maybe. I'll okay. Just 
for practical purposes, let's just say a foot and a half, less than two feet. We were literally shooting the same bush of flowers. And he was like, DT, you found like the best set of flowers out here. And I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. Not sure about the light, blah, 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 whatever else. Ryan takes maybe four or five frames. Done. A week later, hey, DT, look at this image. I would have never have been able to get anything remotely close to that. The image was, it was totally epic. It looked great, dramatic and moody, just how we've seen it. No, nothing crazy with moving flowers around or anything like that. But what I did learn, again, it's one of those learning lessons is that you just have to have the eye for certain things and being able to pre-visualize in the field makes a huge difference. Yeah, I was on probably the best spot in that field of flowers, but the position of where I wasn't necessarily all that great to my eye, but to Ryan, who's standing to the left of me, less than two feet away, came up with something that I would have never remotely been able to pull off. It, it, that kind of stuff matters. Oh, oh, yeah. And I think it, you bring your own experiences when you shoot. Sure. So like if you we saw the same thing and stuff, you would see it differently because of the experiences that you've had in the past and, and vice versa. And that's why... It, I don't, when people say workshops and stuff, everybody shoots the same thing. It might mm-hmm. be true, yep. but each person is going to come back with a different photograph because absolutely. Of the way they saw it, the way they process it. Yep. Absolutely. And, and all of that. Yep. Absolutely. So tell us what it's like to be David, the husband, David, the father, and David, the photographer. And do you keep those people separate or does it all cross over? It's a combination of all of that. Man, how can I answer that? So I'll break it down like this. So I always got to, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm selfish or anything like that by any means. So people that are out here listening, don't don't beat me up for this. But so first and foremost, I have to look at David Thompson as a person. David Thompson as a person, as the individual. I'm like anybody else. I go to work every day. I work hard. I just try to do my job be great at what I do, first and foremost. Then from that, it's David Thompson, the photographer. That photography aspect of me is an extension of my life now. And with that, I'm very passionate about that. It's a part of my mental health, just to ground myself. When I go out there every day and the work that I do, I'm in, I'm in the public and I see the worst of people. This people, just crazy stuff at times. And my photography gives me an opportunity to disconnect from all of that. Now, when it comes to David Thompson, the husband and father, there are obligations there that we obviously, as a father and husband, that you need to do. And yes, I can bring my photography into that as well when we do like family trips and I can break away and do my stuff in the morning time and then maybe come back to wherever we're at. And then we do family stuff for the rest of the day. Yes, that's that's also a thing too. But again, going back to my mental health and just being able to disconnect, sometimes parent, being a parent and you're just dealing with the stress of kids going out there to school and they see certain things and you got to explain the real world to them, sometimes becomes a little overwhelmed. And again, sometimes I need to disconnect away from that for a little bit, just to clear my head of the stuff that my son is coming to me with, the stuff that he sees at school, stuff that he hears at school. And so, man, when I was younger, I didn't have to hear any of that. So to explain to him the real, I'm, I'm 100% with my kid. 
I've always have been with all my kids. I keep it real with them. I don't sugarcoat anything. And I tell them like, it's a hard world. The world is not nice. It's not pretty at times. And you know, that again, it can be rough at times, right? So the photography lets me disconnect from that as well. And being a husband, it's a beautiful thing. I have been really fortunate to have a wife that lets me or allows me to go out and do my photography and doesn't question me like, when are you going to be home? I need you back in an hour or whatever. It's, you know what, if you need to go, take as long, as much time as you can. And that makes a huge difference. And, uh, but I'm respectful of that. So I don't try to overstep my boundaries there. And, uh, and I think that is also part of having a healthy marriage and having a healthy relationship, being able to do your own thing without the spouse and vice versa. It's the same way. If she needs to go and do her thing, go ahead, do your thing. I'm fine. But I also, it's also that, that feeling of independence that I also like with photography. So you get that feeling of independence, the feeling of exploring and just seeing what's out there and just gives me a chance to, again, to just like disconnect and get in touch with myself and I'm just deal with the regular stresses of life. Yeah, I know I, I make no bones about taking workshops and stuff and I have in the past. But for me, that's the same thing. You deal with work and kids and family and stuff. And sure. for me, that is a set time that I set aside for myself. I don't have to think about work. I don't have to think right. about my obligations and I sure. can just go and enjoy. And yeah. it's hard to carve out when you have family obligations and stuff like that. It's hard to carve out time. Right. And I'm like what they call a weekend warrior. As soon as the weekend comes, I'm gone. Right. You're right. I do the weekend warrior stuff too. But yeah, it's you do need time. Everybody out there as an individual needs time. Whether Whatever your thing is, whether it be weightlifting or running or photography or tennis, basketball, whatever your thing is, everybody as an individual needs that that downtime. I think that if you're in a relationship, both parties need to respect each other's time. Yeah. And I, when you have that time, I, at least for me, like I go to the mountains and stuff and I feel refreshed. I'm in a sure. better mood. Yes. So the work gets better of me and my kids get better of me. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. I absolutely agree. I got a question for both of you. And uh, Candy, if you want to go first, it's a very simple question, but the answer is always really interesting. And the question is, why do you make photographs? Yeah, that is a that is a very interesting question. I have not always been a shooter. I started doing photography basically because of my son. He, when he was about 14, he had worked at a part-time job and saved the money and bought himself a camera. And it, we were at his eighth grade graduation and the kids got up and thanked their parents for certain things. He thanked his dad for having fun and doing the snowmobiles and the motorcycles and stuff like that. And he thanked me for taking care of him. And I walked away from that and I'm like, what's wrong with this? So I decided that to buy a camera and I thought we could learn together and go out hiking. And that was something that him and I could connect on. I started that and I haven't looked back. It ended up being a really great thing. It's changed my perspective on life. It's changed the way I see things. And I absolutely fell in love with it. Most of my family thought it would sit on the shelf and that'd be about the end of it. And it wasn't. And 11 years later, I'm still doing it. Awesome. And what about you, yeah, DT? The reason why I 
take pictures and make photographs is I just, I love the process of image making, the start to end. And even if I don't get to the print aspect of it, I just love the whole process. So this would be going back for me, Candy and Matt, back to film. And this is no social media or any of this other stuff. So I always just been into photography. And back then in film, I had no idea what I was doing. I just would point at something that just looked cool to me. And nine times out of 10, I didn't come up with a good exposure because I didn't know anything about metering, exposure, or composition, or light, or anything. But it was a curiosity of everything. So just seeing if what I see can come out on that that piece of film and or come out on that negative or even the final print. Back then, we'd be printing the little five by sevens and seeing if you got a, a decent exposure or not. So for me, it's always been the curiosity of it and just like the whole process of it. Can I make something look good with this camera? And then obviously when we came to digital, the whole game changed and you started doing more exploring and getting out into nature and things take off from there. But even now, I always like that that challenge, the hunt, the start to finish, the planning, the 36 hours of no sleep (laughs) we were talking about earlier. Even see like mentally, are my wits still there to do what I love despite conditions and the tiredness and that kind of thing? Yeah, for me, it's just the whole process of it, Matt. Again, I can honestly, if I don't come up with anything, I'm still into it. Yep. I'm still into it. It's still, it's, I'm still going to have the motivation to still do what I need to do. So yeah, more or less, that's why. Yeah, nice. I like the how photography has shown the world to me. Yes. And there's places that I would have never thought about going 15 years ago. And I've sure. seen some of the most beautiful places on earth. Yeah. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. And then well, it like, does, The camera does change your view of the world. Yes. Just look at the world completely different. Yeah, that's interesting. Like for me, it's you said it resonated a lot, DT. But for me, it's you're building memories, you're building stories, you're making personal connections with other humans, you're becoming a better person because you're learning all kinds of cool things about the natural world, and you're you're going to really interesting places that you probably wouldn't have gone to if you weren't a photographer. It forces you to stay in pretty good physical condition because you got to hike around. And then what I love about photography the most, I think, is you're engaging in something that there's no right or wrong way to do it. And it's up to you to figure out how to unlock that puzzle in a way that makes sense to you. And then you get to show it to other people and see what they think about it, which I think is super fun. Yeah. I think that's a, you brought up a great point there. Like it's, that's the other thing. It's the whole trying to figure it out. You have this camera, you have landscape, you have light combining all these things together to come up with, a quote unquote image, if you will. That's the challenge. I love that. And like Matt said, the memory aspect of it, when I do these galleries, each one of those images, I can go and talk about each one. I know how the light was. I know the thought process that was going on there, why I shot it, how I shot it, what I was pre-visualizing in the field. And it brings back all those memories. So it's almost like it's a chapter or a little stamp in your, your little photography book or whatever you want to call it that you can refer back to and go back off of those memories. Yeah. And Candy, I think you have a question about the galleries. I do. (laughs) It might be a good segue. 
Yeah. I'm curious about why you choose to release your images in a gallery. Like a lot of people, myself included, we I do it one at a time and I tell a story. Not always. Sometimes I just put it up and let it stand on its own. But sure. I'm curious as to why you choose to do it that way. And how long does it take you? Great question. So early on, when I was learning all my stuff and figuring out ways to display the work, we had all the social media sharing sites and these people would just post whatever they feel randomly and that kind of thing, which is great. But again, I'm trying to separate myself from the pack and do something different. And I've always enjoyed looking at people's whole body of work. And I remember like guys like Cecil Witt, I remember... The only people really at that time I think they were really doing it was maybe like Cecil Witt and maybe Mark Adamus at the time. But these were guys that would release just a handful of images at once and you'd just, you'd just be going through and going through looking at each one of these images. And I found myself enjoying the viewing process of that and instead of just seeing an individual image because I would see these individual images from there's everybody. And I would always go, damn, what else is there? I know they were there for a week, but what else did they shoot while they were there? Yeah. And whether depending on the conditions or however their style of shooting is, something completely different. But I always had that curiosity of what if or is there more? So I always was curious about that. So when I started getting around a lot more and I started collecting all these images and some of them are interesting and some of them are not, but I thought like the viewing experience of viewing all these images as a whole would be great to the viewer. Not only, and I like putting them together too, because it's that repetitiveness of like when you're putting images together, you are processing say, I don't know, it could be 30 images at a time, maybe more. And then the curation process of it. So then you're curating, you're trying to pick out the best for that gallery. So now it's making that body of work even stronger and more interesting for the viewer to see for themselves. Now, as ter- as far as the time frame that it takes to put it together, I just had the Death Valley one that I just did, and that was years of okay. just putting stuff aside. That's like my backyard. And I'll, my season for Death Valley would be, say, November to late May. So during that time, I would make a handful of images, but maybe only four or five that I really like during that time. So I can just put those aside. Now I can share those individually, but I don't share a lot. I don't post a lot of stuff because I'd rather just share my stuff all at once. So people can, again, enjoy the viewing experience. Also, with that being said, another reason why I don't post a lot is I don't want my work to get mixed up with the thousands of images that we see every day. I know my stuff is going to be different, But if I'm posting every day, people are going to get image fatigue. We get image fatigue all the time. So I just don't want to get caught up in the mix of that. But going back to the time frame, again, it could be years. It could be months. It could be several visits. It could be over two weeks time frame. I just got back from Iceland and I got stuff from last year, my landscape stuff that I didn't share. I did aerials from Iceland last year. So my landscape stuff from last year, I can combine with this year's stuff. I can do all my aerial stuff that I did this year and have that in one gallery. Again, and I'll switch it up. Sometimes I'll save stuff for a gallery idea that I have way down the road, like maybe eight months. It could be a year from now. It could be two years from now. I have a ton of ideas in my little pea brain that some come to fruition and some don't. Some, I'm st- I have to work on it. I think I mentioned before, Matt, that green gallery that I've been working on for 
a very long time, which I have the images for it. But again, it goes back to the curation process. You want something a little bit different and you don't want to just put like this mediocre stuff in there. I don't, I want to share some of my best work. So that's going to be a gallery until I get back into the forest somewhere that has a ton of green, then I can start working on that again. The time frame it varies. It could be some months, could be weeks, could be years. It just really depends. But generally speaking, any of my new stuff, is, it takes months. So yeah, yeah that's so right. <laughs> I feel like that would be really hard because I mean, for most of us, ideally, your best stuff is your most recent stuff, hopefully. So right. you're constantly improving. And then, but then you're looking back on stuff that you want to include and it's four years old and you're like, okay, it doesn't stand up anymore. So I would never feel complete like it was done. So I, like, that's where I've struggled with that particular process. Yeah, <laughs> You're right. And it's not, you're, well, that's a great thing about photography because you're never done. You're always improving. You're always getting better. Your eye gets stronger over time. But I look at it a little bit differently, Matt, because I look at it like this. If an image that you took five years ago was good five years ago, it's going to be good now. This is going to be good now. So I don't look at it in the time aspect of it. I look at it like if the image was at the time of the capture was good, then it'll stand the test of time and it'll be good now. I don't really get caught up with the time frame of it in those regards. Yeah, I get too anxious. Like I go out and <laughs> shoot and come back and load them up and stuff. And I just get so excited. I'm like a little kid at Christmas. So it's hard for me to not want to post it. Sure. A image at a time. But I've also learned to sit back and yep. kind of soak it in because I had a bad habit of choosing one, setting it out there. And then I come back later and I'm like, oh, wow, this one would have been better. I give myself like a week or so to, I look at them, like that day and then come yep. back to them and it's helped. It's so, helped so let me ask you, Candy, at what point do you look at the image from the time of capture, going home, loading them on the computer, reviewing them, processing? At what point do you say this is ready to go into the world? When I can't find anything wrong with it. Yeah. I will. I keep all my layers so I can go back and Sometimes I'll work hours on an image and then step away and then come back the next day. And if it still looks good to me, then I'm like, okay, if it doesn't, then I'll tweak it some more and, and I'll keep doing that. Sometimes because of my excitement for where I was, I release them. And then later on, I'm like, oh crap, there's, this is wrong or that's wrong and stuff. And then it's too late. So I've learned to slow down a bit. Sure. What about you, Matt? Are you the same way on that or? I'm pretty similar to Candy, although my workflow is destructive, which whatever, I'm a sinner. Yeah, but too. <laughs> I, I tried this year DT based on just hearing you talk and Eric Bennett talk and other Alex talk. I tried doing the whole marinate thing this year. And I have images that I captured back in April and May that I've barely touched. And Good. the longer, no, it's bad. The longer time span that grows between when I've made the image and where I am now, the less excited I am to process it. And that's interesting. And so I'm really struggling with that approach myself. I yeah. I totally see the value of it, but 
There is something like Candy was saying about using that momentum and that excitement and that emotional state of mind that you're in from capturing the image and having that carry over into the editing process that helps me a lot. But with that being said, for me, that also, my editing is way worse when I do that. So I'm still trying to figure out the right balance there. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's that you can recognize that and then try to figure out where you can get that nice balance as you were mentioning. I After the Death Valley release, that was a very long time. It was a very long time and a very tedious process to put that gal- gallery together. I won't do that again. It was a little, it was a little too long. There was a lot of images in there. I feel like it turned out great, but it just... It was just a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And you're building and building. And then same thing. At some point, you got to go, okay, so when are you going to stop? Are you going to keep on going and have 100 images? Which would have been fine, but I don't know if I want to do a 100 image gallery or something like that. Try to keep it nice and tight and consolidated. But it was a lot of work, a lot of processing, a lot of retouching, a lot of go backs, a few start overs, which I hate doing, but sometimes you just have to. Like you're good candy, you save all your layers. I, I don't save any of that stuff. I stamp everything and that's it. And once those layers are done, that's it. That's all she wrote. Yeah, there's a lot of starting over, which was fine, but yeah, it was too much work. So going forward, I probably won't wait five plus years to release work like that again. Now I will say that more recently I've been trying to incorporate more critique into my yep. process so that if I feel like something is pretty close. I'll either put it on NPN or I'll put it in a Discord channel I'm in or I'll send it to some of my friends and I'll get some feedback. And that usually helps me dial it in and then I feel pretty good about where it's at. But yeah, the timing piece is really hard. Yeah, I hear you on that. That's for sure. So just know, like I said, I just got back from Iceland. The aerial stuff that you know, then I'm working on that will, that type of work I can put out a little bit quicker because the editing is a little much more straightforward and I don't have to do any kind of crazy stuff, but something like that I can get done maybe like a month or so. Whether I put it out after that is something completely different, but yeah, that something like that, I would probably wait a few months to put it out. And then the other stuff that I got will take a little bit longer because you're dealing with a lot more stuff, little stuff that you got to tweak and that kind of thing. The big scenes take a little bit longer. So yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. I would have a hard time choosing the images. Like Matt asked for 10 photos and I'm like, I don't know. I've ch- uh, chosen, but I, so for me, it would take forever, but I do like your approach because when you release a gallery, you have all these image images mm-hmm. and they're very cohesive and sure. it's really cool to look and you a person spends the time looking where like me, I released an image and somebody might spend two minutes on it and scroll on by. But for you, it's, oh, wow, these are cool. And it keeps going. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing going back to what I was saying, it's the viewing experience. I want to try to give people the best viewing experience possible, whether I share one image or 30. And I always try to come up with something a little bit different. Anytime I can achieve that, then I'm happy or people enjoy it. Cool. First and foremost, so I got to be satisfied with the work because if you can't connect with it, nobody else is going to. So yeah, uh, definitely got to make sure that you connect with the imagery first and foremost. I think that's telling too, David, that your primary concern is the viewing experience as yep. opposed to social media relevancy. 
Yeah, I'll put it to you like this, Matt. I feel like for me personally, I don't really feel like my work is, I don't want to necessarily say social media worthy, but I know some of my work is not going to turn head, if you will. It's just not going to. I don't, I don't make work like that. Once in a while, maybe, but for the most part, I don't. And that's fine because again, I'm just trying to be the best well-rounded photographer that I can possibly be regardless of how many likes and followers I get. I think that over time, having that a well-rounded body of work is going to mean much more than 6,000 likes on one image. Yeah. I, for a long time, I shot nothing but waterfalls and I'm drawn to water and I love waterfalls and stuff. And then my brother's, he's okay. We know you can do waterfalls, now do something else. He had a good point because that's the part that I was telling telling you guys earlier about stepping outside of the box and stepping out your comfort zone to try something different. And but again, it goes back to answering your question then, but that's what actually, like when my work shot up, that was what it was, is just like getting out of my comfort zone and being uncomfortable and doing different things. And you do that, you will your work will expand in a different way. Yeah, I noticed that when I bought my my first 100 to 400 because I was the big scene person or yep, waterfalls yep. and stuff. And then zooming in on little <laughs> things and stuff. And now I hardly ever break out like the 16 to 35. Doesn't uh, it? Isn't it amazing what that long lens does to the landscape? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's I felt like it was a whole other world. And, it. Yeah. And Same love that. It. That's probably one of my favorite lens. That's cool. That's really cool. So another question, speaking of photographs, is which is your favorite photograph and tell us the story behind it. Oh favorite photograph. Can literally anyone think of that answer? Like honestly. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, I, I can. Have, <laughs> you know I have, what I mean, I though? Favorite. Like, it's, oh, but then there's that one. And I would probably say, I would probably say maybe the very first image on my slideshow on my website, which is the uh, cypress tree with the, uh, the nice red and orange foliage with the mist and stuff. I'd yeah, probably that say that one. And the reason why I would say that one is because when I first started seeing images from the Cypress, Cypress Forest down there, down south from David Chauvin, and this has gone back a very long time ago. And I see these scenes and he, David Chauvin had, has the best swamp images. And when I saw his imagery from down there, I was like, damn, that place looks so cool. Like that place looks amazing. And then some years later, I finally got a chance to experience it for myself. And I always knew that there is always room for improvement. And I always look at my work like that, that there's always room for improvement. But when it came to swamp imagery, to me, in my personal opinion, that was the image there that kind of set a standard, if you will, for the quality of work from that area. And, and I can say that with a straight face and it would be, I'd be hard pressed to say that I've seen conditions quite like that in terms of the composition, the processing, whatever else. But that to me was the, like the epitome of swamp imagery. And when I saw that image pop up on the back of my camera, I was like, this is what it, this is how it should be right here. There's certain images which you take and it pops up on the back of the LCD and you go, that's it. And that was one of those images. Super cold morning, like probably like in the low 20s, 28, 27 ish. 
And I remember that morning specifically because I, I was taking my time just going around the lake, shooting different compositions, getting in and out of the kayak. And uh, that specific scene, I shot and I spent a little bit of time there. And it was just like the colors were so vibrant and so juicy and all the mist is coming off of the water. I mean, there was that times where you couldn't even see anything because there was so much mist. The little details where the top of the cypress trees, the mist would rise and you would just see the frost forming on the top of the trees. There's a few images that I have in there where if you look at the top, you can see all the leaves were all frosted. And it was just like such an amazing experience. And you're just like, damn, like I'm here capturing this. It's you're like, you can't believe it. And I remember paddling back and I was just so in awe I actually wanted to go home that day because I was like, I'm done. I can, I don't have to take another image on this trip and I would be perfectly fine. Yeah, I'd be perfectly the fine. That's the yeah. best. It was the, like, I was done. I was like, I can call it quits right now and be completely happy with my trip just because of that one image. But I think that particular image for me is one of my standout images. And again, I, I take a, a lot of pride in that one and I think it's one of the best out there. Yeah, I've seen other people try to quote unquote copy that and stuff. Yeah. And it, yeah, yours was the first. And like you said, it set the standard for sure. Yeah. And then the other thing too is, and I think that's different with that particular image is again, is the process. And you'll, Candy, we'll, we'll talk about it here in a couple of weeks. Again, my approach for that image and all the little nuances of what I did, just other people aren't there yet with that swamp imagery is just one of those things. Yeah, I find it interesting. People have strengths. So like for me, I do waterfalls fairly well and stuff. And it's just interesting to me how like Matt does mountains really well, how each person has their own strength. Sure. And then, like you said, trying to do other stuff and get outside your comfort zone. And I know whenever I do that, like I've been trying to master astrophotography Sure. And sure. I have a really good friend that's been helping me do that. And I feel like I take 10 steps back when I do stuff like that. <laughs> or even the drone work, it's I feel oh, like I'm yeah. starting all over, but yeah. But I'll get there and just yeah. have to give myself the time. Yeah, the drone work stick with it. Like I was telling you before, that's just a whole nother topic of discussion that's just super crazy. And yeah, that's the drone work is just on another level. Just knowing when I first started and what the capabilities of using a drone and I've always just stuck with it and Matt's getting more into it and you yourself, Candy, but just the possibilities that are out there, if you have an open mind and be a little bit creative in your thought process in terms of the landscape and composition, you can come up with stuff that nobody will ever see. Ever. Yeah. I think it's there's a, a really huge window there of opportunity. People take advantage of it. Yeah. And I think when you step outside your comfort zone that way in terms of switching subjects and techniques and drones versus macro versus grand scenics versus telephoto, you start to build, you're adding tools to your toolbox. And you're. I think you can start to apply the things that you learn in each one of those in different ways to all of your photography you become more well-rounded. And like last year was the first time I really spent any time in the Redwoods and I had no fog. And, but that made me grow as a photographer because I had to learn how to compose in the forest. And that's like really hard to do. And you can use that 
experience and start to apply it to other things too. Yeah. Yeah. What you did a good job of, Matt, those images that you have in there were perfectly fine. I think that uh, you did a good job in there despite the conditions. And I teach my students this as well. People that take privates with me and my clients, I tell them, any kind of landscape that you shoot, or even if you shoot small scenes, that's just going to improve your eye for other stuff. I can't stress it enough. Be diverse with your work because that diversity is just going to make you a stronger photographer. And it's just going to make you see the landscape different every time you go out. Yeah. And I feel like everybody wants the perfect conditions and stuff, but when you don't have them, it makes you think. And yeah. then you got to figure it out. It's, okay, do I shoot this or how can I shoot this? Or maybe I don't shoot this and there's something else that I can go shoot. It, I don't know. I think it makes you grow as a photographer if you don't have perfect conditions. It most definitely does. Who is your go-to person for critique? The one person that you send your stuff to that will tell you it sucks or no, no holding back. Who's that person? Me. Me, yeah. I'm my own, I, me, me, no holds barred. <laughs> no, I have a couple people that uh, that I go to. My buddy, Nolan Nitschke, I, I'll send stuff to him occasionally. And Miles, I'll send stuff to him. Once in a while, I'll send stuff to Eric. But a lot of times, I'll be honest with you, like, I usually what I do is I'll just send the whole gallery to them. And then I just let them look over everything. And then they'll tell me the ones that they like. And they'll say, oh, maybe you can fix this one or tweak this one or get rid of that. So I only have like a handful of people that I send my stuff to. But when it comes to the curation process and all that other stuff and the actual critique, like I do the majority of it, it's on me. I just go to them for final touches, yeah. if you will. But uh, yeah, but for the most part, I'm my worst critic. So you know, I, a lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of I stuff hear doesn't that. get by me. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of stuff doesn't get by me. I like sending, I have a really good friend Josh that I send a lot of my work to, and it's nice to have a second set of eyes for me because I yep. get so involved in my photo and I miss sometimes the obvious. And yep. I'll send it and he'll be like, oh, you got to tweak this or tweak that. And there's been a couple times that I have completely torn it apart after sending. And not that he said anything bad, but he made some good points. And so I've torn my photo apart and started over. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have people like that, that you can bounce stuff off of and give you some good feedback, whether it be positive or negative. The feedback is always good. And this is one of the things that I... I stress to any of those photographers out there that really want to improve their work. If you guys really want to improve, forget about all the processing and that kind of stuff, which is good. But due to critiques, find somebody to bounce stuff off of. You'll be surprised on what they see and what they don't see. So yeah, do it. It, it helps. Yeah. I remember I had put a photo up on Facebook and this was early on. And Mark Metternich private messaged me and said, hey, your horizon's crooked. And right. he wasn't trying to be mean. And I look back sure. at it. And to this day, that is a pet peeve of mine. If I good. see somebody he, else's and I'm like, no. Yeah, he made you really aware, which is good. That's that's yeah. what you need. You need that that awareness for little stuff like that because some something that can be easily overlooked. And But the cool thing is you sent in a message and you're receptive of it. And hey, the rest is history. So now one of your pet peeves is Crooked Horizons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 
it, sometimes I'll admit it's hard for me to take critique because I want everybody to love my stuff. Sure. But I've learned that it's their perceptive or perception right. of my photo. And sometimes yeah. it's good. And sometimes I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm, I like yeah. it. So the thing is this, Candy, I would say this. One thing I always say is try not to get overly invested in the imagery. You're going to have certain images that you're obviously going to connect to. And if you have that connection with that image, regardless of any kind of critique you're going to get, you're still going to have that connection with that image. So you may not want to get rid of it. You may not want to change the color of it because it's going to be with you and what you feel in that image that needs to be there. I always say, I don't, I never get overly caught up and overly invested with images like that because I know that some stuff that I'm going to like, other people just aren't going to, you're going to have favorites that are your favorite and aren't going to be the next person's favorite. And some of your images that you hate, people are going to love. It's always like that that fine line there that, that you're going to have, but just don't get overly invested in it. Not too much feeling behind it, regardless of how hard you have to work for it. Sometimes you can work super hard for an image and it just isn't time. It just doesn't work. I've had it happen to me so many times where I've missed the mark by just a little bit. And, but again, I take it as a learning lesson. So when I go back out, there's particulars that I'm going to pay attention to when I'm in the field. So I don't miss that mark on the next side. Yeah. Yeah. And it's since I've been learning to do that, not take it so much as a fail, but as a learning opportunity, sure. then I'm anxious to go out the next time because yes. I have that knowledge. And so now I can improve, but you nickname miles where is, <laughs> and I want to know the funniest where is story that you ever had with him. Oh my God. I can't, <laughs> there are so many. I don't even, I don't even know where to begin with that. Jesus. <laughs> I would, I, the one that sticks out the most though, to me is the funniest story. We went into the Kofas. This was like some years ago, the Kofas down in Arizona. And this is before it came like a real big hot spot. That was the same trip where I got Chola needles in, in my butt oh, and I wow. might have to pick them out. In fact, it was the very next day. So we were we're in the we're in the Ofas and there's two sections. So there's a section if you go up the road and it has a real cool pointy needle mountain in the back. And then there's the front section that has all the nice cholas in front of the uh, the mountains. So there's two sections back there, and Miles chose to go to the section in the back, and I stayed in the section up front. And it's probably like a, like if you hike over there, it's probably like maybe like 15 or 20 minutes to get over to the backside. He goes and does his thing. I stay up front and do my thing. Again, failing miserably, like what I typically do when I'm out just messing stuff up. And so he comes back and it's like almost dark and it's that sunset and he comes back and he is sweating, sweating bullets and he's out of breath. What is wrong with you? He's, his shirt has like the wet spot on the neck and stuff and he's just sweating all over. I'm like, what is wrong with you? He's like, oh, I can't find the keys to the rental. I go, I go, what do you mean? He's like, I looked everywhere. I looked in my backpack. I was backtracking my steps for the past hour and I'm looking for it. I can't find them. I don't know where everything's at. I, I can't find it. I can't find it. And I reach in my pocket and I pull him out and I'm like, I got him right here. And he just has this look on his face and his eyes get big. He rolls his eyes and throws his arms in the air and just like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. He's like, I thought I lost the car to the rental car out in the middle of the desert. And I thought we were going to have to hike back to the highway just to 
try to get back to the rental car place and get another set of keys. He was oh, losing shit. his mind. And I was just like, they're right here. All nonchalant, as a matter of fact. And he was just like, oh, my God. He, like, had a full-on meltdown out there in the middle of the desert. Oh, you should have ma- messed with him and been like, dude, oh, God. you had him I where? I, I couldn't even. I couldn't even. It was just so funny just looking at his face. I couldn't even go there because he was already a mess. True. And, uh, yeah. Miles is, like, the, a super emotional guy like that. So if I would have messed with him, he would just would have... He just would have been wrecked. But that's just one of many stories. Chapstick, gloves, drone controller, his phone, his everything. Dude, I tell him, I joke with awesome. him all the time. Every time we go out, I give him a hard time because I'm like, you fly million dollar airplanes for a living and you can't find a dollar chapstick that's in your pocket. And he's the plane already has everything in it. I don't have to do anything there. I just get in and fly. This is the funniest thing. David, I do a lot of my trips with Kane and Kane pretty well too, but yeah, he's notorious for losing either his phone or his keys. <laughs> and now he's got this tile thing. Have you heard of tile or it's like a, no, a little RFID chip thing you put on your keychain and then it's got an oh app God. on your phone. And if you push one or the other, <laughs> it'll make a sound. It'll like make a little sound. And literally oh, if you're God. on a trip with Kane, that stupid oh. tile song will go off like at least six oh. times a day because he's lost something. Oh, oh wow. my God. He just needs to get like a little like kid lanyard and throw it around his <laughs> neck with his keys on there and just something super easy. Come on. That's funny. That's the right. oh, main man. reason I got the iWatch is so I could find my phone. Oh, right. man. Too Where's funny. my phone? <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Good old Miles. He's a funny guy. So I'm not sure how much time we have left, Matt. But Yeah, I just would... keep going. Okay. So which which two photographers or one photographer influenced you the most who do you look up to and aside from miles and ryan believe it or not i look up to a lot of photographers all of you guys i think the whole community i find inspiration from but with that being said i would say in terms of influence i would say cecil witt by far only because not because of I wouldn't necessarily say his processing or anything like that. And the stuff that he shoots is really cool and his processing is great. But he he's the one that planted the seeds, if you will. Cause he was I would send him emails asking him about certain things about processing. And he never would give me like necessarily like a direct answer. It's always when you get an email from Cecil's like trying to decipher the Da Vinci code because he's we're talking like riddles and stuff. So I'd have to read his email like 20 or 30 times just to figure out what he was saying. But the reason why I say that is because he's the one that planted the seeds and I just watered them by just doing all my research on my own and just staying persistent with the research and gaining my own knowledge. And I would just send him emails, just asking him like little stuff, just random, random things. And he just really opened my eyes in terms of creativity and really diving into the processing and the little things and really the little nuances, the little things that make a huge difference in the process. And so I would say by far him the most because Again, he didn't necessarily give me anything specific. It was him planting the seeds and giving me maybe a small idea. And I just took off and ran with that idea. So yeah, I would have to say Cecil Witt in terms of the influence for sure. And you can 
listen to him on this podcast all the way back on episode 18. Okay. 18. That's crazy. Yeah, he's Cecil's a very eclectic. He's an eclectic guy. Just out. Yeah, he's not gonna. He's not for everybody. Personality wise, some some of his work is definitely not gonna be for everybody. But he's super smart, and again, he's one of the guys that just really un, he unlocked the DT that I am now. He basically unlocked that, and I just stayed persistent with the whole the whole quest of trying to learn to learn my 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 photography and learn the process of image making. He unlocked all that. Yeah. I'm very grateful for that. And I tell him all the time. I tell him at least two to three times a year. And I say, Hey, look, thanks for doing that and helping me out. And his website is incredible. Yeah, He's got you go to his galleries page and it's like, go in there and it's called these thumbnails. And you're like, Oh, those are nice photos. And then you realize that each one of those thumbnails is a link to a gallery that has sub galleries. It's just oh, wow. It's like a Easter egg hunt in there. Wow. Yeah, it really is. He has so he has so much stuff. He basically the Southwest, like all those remote places and when it comes to hoodoos and rocks, he's he's it. He has it on lock. He knows what he's doing, that's for sure. So we gotta talk about gear. It wouldn't be a <laughs> podcast without it. So you currently shoot the D eight fifty, correct? No. I ditched the D eight fifty and I shoot with the Nikon mirrorless Z seven. Oh, okay. I guess that goes that question. I was going to ask you if you had any plans to do the Z9 or come back to Canon. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually, it's cool. Cause uh, speaking of Kane, Matt, Kane is basically the one that got me to switch over to the mirrorless. I, the D850 was, is great. It's probably the best camera body that I've ever had by far from Nikon. It does everything. It's built like a tank, but it's heavy. And when you include all the other gear that you're carrying it's heavy so switching to mirrorless for the lighter setup was ideal to me the other thing that is really nice with the mirrorless setup is the lenses are a lot sharper than the other lenses that i had with the fx lenses yeah it's nice because you get new camera body that's light sharper lenses better lens selection and lens choices so yeah i'm shooting mirrorless right now i love it i should have switched a long time ago when mirrorless first came out and yeah i don't see myself going back to the dslr but i guess here in a couple of years we probably won't even be able to find one anywhere so that'll be interesting too but i will say this though candy when i was in iceland a couple of weeks ago when i was doing the aerial stuff i went up with two bodies i went up with the mirrorless and i went up with actually my old d8 d800 oh, and okay. was shooting and was still shooting that because i still have it and i i kept the 50 millimeter prime lens on there and the dslr i actually liked the the buffer rate on the images a lot better than what you had on the mirrorless because the mirrorless has a little bit of a slow buffer but on the dslr man it was just like you could just like machine gun shoot it and those images will pop right up in those regards it was nice using the dslr for the aerial stuff i think i'm just gonna keep that body just for that going forward in the future but yeah the uh, the mirrorless it worked fine but there's little things that annoy me a little bit with it so yeah yeah i just it was like a year ago and i had drug my feet into the mirrorless systems i hated it didn't want anything to do with it i was happy with the mark four and then canon came out with their mirrorless and i'm like no nah, i'm gonna give it some time but then when they came out with the r6 i thought this yeah. is a good way to get my feet wet and i actually ended up really liking it 
And then the only issue I had with it is it was only 18 megapixels. So if you shoot wildlife at all and have to crop in, sometimes it wasn't very good. So then I jumped to the the R5 and I love that camera. Now somebody has, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. The the mirrorless, one of the things that I was kind of like with you, I was on the fence with it, but once that digital viewfinder, just being able to zoom in and you got full 100% viewing and you can focus point anywhere on in the viewfinder, that to me was like really nice. It's little, it doesn't seem like much because I really don't use, I use live view, but a lot of times when I compose, I like to compose through the viewfinder, fine tune through live view. So that was good. And then at the time I had got eye surgery. That was like a whole nother thing. Being able to go from a little bit blurry in the DSLR because not really crisp to the digital viewfinder being nice and clean and I can see everything clearly was a huge bonus for me. Yeah, that my eyes aren't, I wear contacts and stuff. And that's what I found as well. And I like being able to, like you said, looking through the viewfinder and zooming in and manual yep. focus. And then you yeah. can also have a histogram and stuff. So yep. it, it yeah. solves a lot of issues. And yeah. now somebody hands me a regular DSLR and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, um, Matt is, you're shooting this too, right? You're a Sony, right? Yeah, I switched in 2017 from the D800. Oh, okay. Okay. So why Sony, Matt? Well, at the time, it was all there was. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. Okay, gotcha. Um, and long story short, I did this insane backpacking trip with the Holy Trinity and the D800, and it almost crushed my soul. And yeah, I switched over to the mirrorless. When you do a lot of backpacking, the size and the weight matters a lot, and so it was just a, that was mostly the, I drove that decision. Yeah. I thought that I would be saving a lot of weight going mirrorless, but I actually haven't. I've got the 100 to 500 that's heavy. The 24 to 105 is okay. And then the lightest one, I just bought a Sigma 20 1.4 for Astro. And it's, I don't you can a have a very light DSLR setup, but the size is still different. Yeah, the yeah. size. That's yeah, you're right. This the lens is being a lot smaller for me, just with travel makes it nice. Just like perfect example is just coming back from Iceland. I had all my gear with me, including the drone, all in one backpack. Wow. So that's that's the kind of setup that I need. Every I can get everything all in one. That's what I need. Speaking of drones, have you ever lost a drone? I've lost <laughs> Two already. Oh, I lost wow. two already. The first one I lost in your neck of the woods. I can't remember what year that was. I know it was on my birthday and just did my regular flight check, make sure everything was good. I flew one battery, no problem. Second battery, got to flying. Five minutes in, just disconnected, nothing. Just screen went black, no sign of any malfunction or anything. That drone is out in the wetlands somewhere. I don't know. Wow. I would have went and got it. But I don't, I don't know where to look in those wetlands, so I couldn't go out there and go searching for it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened there. I tried to call DGI to see if they can check like the flight recorder or something, and they were just like, "Oh, if you don't got a warranty, you just lost it." And uh, last year, I lost a, a Mavic Two Pro in Iceland, which was all my fault. Pilot error, just flying too low, and yeah, just big. One of those Iceland big semis flew by at 60 miles per hour and blew that thing into some rocks. And that was all she wrote. I recovered that. And 
I recovered that. It was in pieces. That one, honestly, I didn't, it, that one didn't bother me as much because I knew it was my fault. And then all the drone stuff that I had shot prior, I had already backed up. So it was just kind oh. of, what are you going to do? It is what it is. But yeah, I've lost two drones already just doing that. But I think it's one of those risks that you take when you, anytime you launch that drone off the ground, it's an automatic risk that you take flying it wherever you fly it at. Yeah, that's, I've always wanted to fly drones and stuff, but that was my biggest fear is spending $1,000 or $1,500 on a drone and sure. then have it go off. And yeah. I still worry about that, but I have insurance. It is yeah. what it is. I came real close. We were at a Spirit Falls and I was going to fly it. And I don't know if it was a win or what happened, but I ended up flying it into a tree and oh. busted one of the propellers. But luckily it didn't drop over the edge and I was yeah. able to I was able to get it. And I'm like, Ugh, that was too close. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I'll say with this, nine times out of 10, if you lose a drone, most of the time it's pilot error. Yeah. You, know, you just got to be, just be mindful of where you're flying. Be careful of your surroundings. Don't try to overextend the battery life. That seems to be one of the biggest things is people overextending the battery life and then trying to fly back and then they don't make it. Be careful of trees. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of it is this pilot era, but just be mindful of where you're flying and take the precautions necessary and have fun with it. Yeah. I have to be careful of keeping my eye on like the battery. I was getting the land now error when we were at yeah. Baker and stuff and I barely made it back. For yeah. me, there's just so much to yeah. worry about the height and running into things and that kind of stuff. And then yeah. the Mini is, it's so much lighter than the Mavic. And sure. so it, it can drift on you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I just try to, like when I fly, I typically, I stay away from trees. That's the first thing. And then if I do fly around trees, I always go above the tree line. Always just take that thing right above the trees. When you first launch, you take that thing straight up and make sure you clear all the trees before you even go anywhere. But yeah, the drone photography is it's so cool. There's just so much stuff out there and just the different perspectives that you can get on the landscape is it's incredible. It's wild. It's that's crazy. Yeah, I'm still struggling with that. I finally got like my comps down with my camera and now I gotta figure right. it out with the drone. Yeah. But there's like being up high, I think we were at Baker and we were shooting with the ice and the mountain and stuff. And then we brought the drones up and just that little bit of height made yeah. a big difference. And then that's, a, that's the perspective stuff that I was mentioning. Like, I'll think of it like this. So if we shoot with our cameras on a tripod, let's just say you're six feet tall, right? So you have a camera, tripod, eye level, you're still a little bit under six feet. You get the drone, you throw it up, and you go up another 20 feet or 15 feet. That perspective of the landscape is going to completely change. It's going to look completely different. And you don't have to go all the way up high and fly into the cosmos to really change the perspective of the landscape. Yes, yeah, so you get up and above everything, but sometimes going super high isn't always the best for composition and that and that type of thing. In terms of the composition candy, you just want to treat it the same way you would do on the on the ground. Use your lines, use the patterns, try not to cut stuff off. And that's the cool thing about the drone is once you get up high, you don't really you don't have to cut anything off because you're high. Right. You, know, you have yeah. more room to move around and do stuff. And Matt will probably tell you panos do wonders on drones, which is amazing 
So you can yeah, do a lot of crop it however you want it. Yeah, it's 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 wild. It's crazy, <laughs> super crazy. Have you ever been tempted to fly in a no-fly zone? He's not going to tell um, you that. I'm struggling no, I, with that. Oh no, my god. No, I'm honest. I'm a straight shooter, Matt. No, here's why. Because there's no fly zones for a reason. And I always respect that. Most of the time, for the stuff that I like to shoot, I haven't gotten to a spot where I've been like, oh, this is a no-fly zone. I can't shoot. So for me, I've been fortunate on the places where I fly. I typically fly way out in the middle of who knows where. But yeah, there's yeah, I haven't had that urge. I've been tempted in Death Valley. Like... I didn't even yeah. have my drone with me, but I just remember thinking like, oh my God, could you imagine what this would look like from the air? Yeah. yeah. That, um, I think, go ahead, Candy. Oh, I was going to say, that's me. Like last night we were shooting Astro at Mount Rainier and we were shooting up by Tipsu and I thought, man, if I could just put the drone up just a little bit, how much better yeah. this would be. Yeah, yeah. You would never live that down if you shared that photo. <laughs> oh no! Oh no. yeah, people would be calling me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what... I've, yeah. I haven't, yeah, I haven't really been any place really that I'm just. Oh man, it's a no fly zone. I can't fly it. The one thing I will say is I wish I the drones could fly like super far, plus miles, without having any issues. Like it's different if you fly like a mile or two. You're like okay, three miles. I'm like I don't know, it's still far. Four plus miles. I could just imagine some of the stuff that I could see if I could fly a drone four miles out, which I know you can. I just don't have, I just don't have, I don't have the courage to fly that far out like that. Not worry about it coming back. Yeah. I sometimes like when I go real far up, I lose it in the air. I can't see it. Yeah. And Oh yeah. That thing. Is, yeah. That thing is gone at 400 feet. You can't, you can barely see a drone. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of bothers me, but I've learned to use the map to point it at me and right. that yeah. kind of stuff. But yeah. I mean, it is funny though. Like technically if you can't see it, you're not supposed to be flying. Right. Yeah. I, I can't confirm or deny that I've flown well over 400 feet in some of these places out here. Yeah, who has is, is there very many places like in the Badlands or Utah that you can't fly? I know Death Valley, but just wilderness areas. Yeah, yeah wilderness areas, but yeah, or national um, parks. Yeah, or national parks, but out this way, Candy in the Southwest, there is just so much remote stuff. There's just there's nothing out there. It's there's nothing out there for no flight pass, no airports. No people, no nothing. Yeah, it's pretty um, stress-free. That's where yeah. I go most of the time is Utah. And there's so much to do, and you're never really worried about anything. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think we have time for a couple more questions. I was going to ask one more for you, Candy, and I think you had said you had some secret weird question for me, which I am not aware of, or have, nor have I prepped for it, but... My question for you, Candy, is super simple. What was it about David and his photography that inspired you to want to do this podcast? So I've been following David for a while. I Honestly, I didn't really know of him until I think it was on your podcast, Matt, that I somebody mentioned to follow him. And so I got curious. And then I heard you on Nick's podcast. And your work stands out. It's not like over the top, hey, look at me type stuff. It's very subtle, but it's powerful. You can get completely lost in your photos. And they speak 
I think they speak to people. At least they do me. I can wow. look at some of your photographs and it's almost like I get the feeling I get being there, even though I've never wow. been there. Wow. That's, ooh, that's, that means a lot. Thank you. And, and you're a very cool guy. I've reached out to you a few times, a couple on the telephoto lenses and stuff. Sure. You've always been very helpful and just such a cool guy. I appreciate that. Like I said, I tell people all the time, I'm just normal. I'm just quiet. I do my thing. I'm trying to live a real stress-free life. I don't want to give nobody any headaches. I try to make it as easy as possible for everybody and anybody I'm around. I do appreciate that. And yeah, it means a lot. Yeah. You just seem like a real genuine people or person. Some of them, it's all about them and they get, some people get a little arrogant and stuff and you're not that way at all. No, not no even there's, close. yeah, I appreciate that. No, there's just no room for that. I just, I wasn't brought up like that. Just even though I feel like I have a pretty decent skill set at what I do, but I feel like you still have to remain humble. And again, there's just no room for me personally. There's just no room for that type of attitude and energy for me to put out there like that. It just, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, I think it, it makes, it's easier for people to connect to you. And that's why I wanted this because I felt like you were a person that I could connect with and feel comfortable. There's some people I wouldn't have wanted to ask questions of. I appreciate that, Candy. That means a lot. Thank you. Mr. Payne, the question I had for you is you created this podcast and it takes, from what I've heard, it takes a lot of your time and effort. I'm sure it's not easy trying to get guests and all that kind of stuff, but What's in it for you? It's a lot of work to do this and you're doing it basically your free time. What have you been able to get out of this? Awesome question. First and foremost, I'm the first person to hear the answers to these questions. And I am probably the only person who's listened to every single episode more than once. <laughs> and what's cool about that is that I've been able to absorb a lot of philosophy, a lot of approaches, a lot of techniques, a lot of ways to think about photography. And I've been able to incorporate that into my own photography. In fact, if you look at my photography before the podcast versus after the podcast a couple of years, like it's just gotten better and better in my opinion. It's still not super good, but it's way better than it was. And then the second thing is I get to make a lot of really awesome personal connections with some great people. And in my opinion, that's what we're here on earth to do is to connect with people and help each other out and find ways to provide value to each other and make meaningful connections. And the podcast facilitates that quite a bit. And then lastly, it de definitely has opened up a lot of doors for me in terms of people know who I am now for better or worse. <laughs> so that's, that, that's a good thing for the most part. It's a bad thing in other ways, but so yeah, I think to your point, I do spend this entire weekend both days I've spent almost entirely on the podcast, but wow. that is what it is. I do have a question for you, Matt. When you first started the podcast, did you envision it being this big? I had absolutely no idea what would happen with the podcast. I had no goals for it. I really didn't. And you can probably tell in the first probably 10, 15 episodes, it was super off the cuff a lot of cussing and there wasn't a lot of structure. And so it's been nice to refine that, but no, sure. I had no idea that people would find value in it. And the more value people find in it, the more I try to tweak it to become that 
values. I know for me, your podcast has introduced me to a lot of people that I didn't know existed. And it's really cool to see their work and interact with them on Facebook or Instagram. That's how I learned of David. And I think it's a really good thing. And you have, you've had some pretty cool guests on here. Yeah, so, some great yeah. people. So kudos, Matt. Thank yeah. you. Good job. Yeah, definitely doing a good job. And I appreciate what you do, Matt, doing a really good job. And I think you've set a good standard here of what photography podcasts should and could be. Thanks. Yeah. I like that you're consistent too. Every week you have something. Some of them, it's like they do one and then maybe six months later they do another one. Yeah, you, I don't know. With anything like this, I feel like you have to be on a consistent schedule. Otherwise, I don't know. I, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself. And you get into a routine, right? Oh, I'm going to listen to that podcast on that day when I do that workout or when I do that exercise or when I drive to that. So I think people get into these routines. And when you mess up that routine, that people are like, oh, I used to like that podcast. Maybe that's a good segue for David, if you want to talk a little bit about what you've got going on in terms of offering your critique sessions. And I'm guessing you probably have something coming up with Eric as well. or. Yeah, Eric and I, we, uh, we've been knocking out the critique sessions. Eric has been killing it with the guests and those critique groups have been really special and they've been good. Everybody has had nothing but great things to say about it and it's meaningful. And if you guys want some really good critique, go to Eric's website or follow him across social media and he's, he's announcing all of those as they come along with special guests and that kind of thing. Um, the next one that Eric and I will be doing, what I think will be Thinker-ish, and that one's going to be a nice special one. We're going to be doing a critique for fall colors. If you guys are interested in getting your images critiqued on fall colors, one of the big types of images that have that nice yellow and red color cast, and you want to learn how to get rid of it, definitely get with us on that one, because that one we're going to do a little bit more in-depth with Photoshop and that kind of thing. Definitely stay on the lookout and announcements for that. And as far as myself, anybody wants to get in and do some post-processing sessions, you can contact me on my website, davidthompsonphotography.com. I think that we might go ahead and do a special again for uh, December. We'll do a holiday a holiday special just for the month of December. We'll do another 15% off. So if you guys are interested in that, contact me whenever this comes out December. Like I said, it'll be good. We'll talk about mid-tone contrast, color separation, color cast, compositions, all the good stuff. And they sell out quick. My time is limited and they go fast. So get in if you guys are interested. On a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the worst, how much do you hate color cast? That's like uh, your number one thing, man. <laughs> That's his pet peeve. <laughs> yeah. No, I would probably say, honestly, it's not necessarily like a huge pet peeve about it because I think a lot of people are just ignorant to it and not really knowing how to spot it. And people don't even notice it because it's something that is big. It's just normal to them. So they don't know what to look for. But if you have that color cast across the whole image, there's not going to be any color separation. And it uh, makes a huge difference when it comes to, to your work and how the image looks. So. Maybe on a scale of one to 10, a 10. Do, no, I'm just kidding. Do you use something special <laughs> to get rid of it or just uh, different things? Well, I have a handful of goodies that I can eliminate color cast with. And Matt knows of one, and which is 
super easy and straight to the point. But again, I'll save some of that for the people that sign up for uh, the Skype session. And something that you'll be well aware of going forward when you and I meet in a couple of weeks. Okay, cool. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Idea for this podcast, Candy. I'm glad you reached out and I'm glad we could pull it off. And thanks to both of you for taking time out of your Sunday to join me. Yay. Yeah. It was yeah. a good time. Awesome. Good job, Candy. I thought you were going to come with something harder than that. That was light work. Oh, I saved the very oh. best for last. You're not getting away that easy. Oh, I thought it was going to be easy. You're friends with, obviously, with Miles and Ryan. Who's your favorite? Oh, oh man. Oh, man. Oh, God. This, oh, God. You don't have to answer that, but I no, thought I'm it was going funny. to because I, I, okay. I want both of them to hear this. Okay. And as much as I love both Ryan and Miles, and Miles and I see each other a lot more. In fact, I just, Miles was just over here three days ago and uh, we were hanging out. But I like Ryan way better than I, I like Miles. Oh, you heard <laughs> Ryan's, it way, Ryan's way cooler. Miles is cool, but Ryan's cooler. And Ryan is like a, he's like a rock star. Miles is on rock star status. So. Be getting that phone call. What? Exactly. Miles, I love you though. <laughs> well, thank you to both David and Candy for this fun conversation. I hope you all enjoy the Artists Asking Artists series. And if you have an idea for one, please let me know. It helps you if you know, or I know the person that you want to chat to. David did let me know that if you're interested in doing an image review and editing session with him, which I highly recommend having done one myself, he is offering a 15% discount for the month of November only. Just reach out to him on social media or on his website, which you can find in the show notes. If you've been struggling with your images, this is a great opportunity for you to improve. Next up on the podcast, we have Martin Gonzalez, an awesome intimate and abstract photographer who has been fun to engage with on the Landscape Photographers Worldwide Discord channel. We also have the next iteration of the Artists Asking Artists series. After that, with Guy Tao and Alex Noriega. And after that, we have Rich Rudro, who spent nearly two months hiking the entirety of the Grand Canyon and was part of the awesome National Geographic documentary, Into the Canyon. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.